We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1992's Candyman, the original, directed by Bernard Rose and written by Bernard Rose, based on the short story The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Here's a clip. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. <laughs> Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Where did I... It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Want no Balboothagee? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? is about to discover. Tell me. Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? I'm sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. That was a clip from Candyman, uh, 1992's original version. We were supposed to get another version here in 2020, though that's probably been pushed back to 2021 at this point. Who knows how theater's going to go? Uh, it was written and directed by Bernard Rose, as I said before, based on a short story by Clive Barker. Joining me, as always, to talk about Candyman, although we've never talked about Candyman before, is Ricky D. <laughs> Hello, Patrick. <laughs> and also joining us is co-host of the Mid-Season Replacements podcast, Sean Coletti, which you can find here on Goombastop, of course. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, guys, Candyman, the story of a – well, it's kind of got a, a weird background story that was changed quite a bit from the short story, from what I understand, from Clive Barker's original story, which was set in Liverpool, uh, England. 
and uh, has been moved. The movie version moves it to Chicago and follows a graduate student who is writing her thesis on mythology, uh, urban legend specifically, and discovers a particularly nasty urban legend uh, that happens to be coincidentally right in her neighborhood. Uh, all right, so Rick, you were the one that chose Candyman. Why? Man, so many reasons why. So I got a quick story. When I was younger, my friends and I wanted to rent some horror films because it was like one of those rainy, stormy nights, like thunder and lightning type thing, right? So we went to the video store and we rented two horror films, one of which was Candyman. And I still remember this night like it was yesterday. Like it was one of the best movie viewing experiences of my life. You know, we all had popcorn. We were ready for this horror film. We thought that this was going to be a really bad, cheesy horror film. And we were pleasantly surprised. Everybody was scared. I remember there was one girl who was crying. She did not want to finish the movie. So I have, like, very fond memories of watching this movie. And I watched this movie several times when I was younger. This is the first time I've watched a movie in, say, like, the past 10, 15 years. Like, I can't remember when the last time I watched this movie was. So... Watching in 2020, especially with more of a critical eye, there's a lot of things that I noticed that I never noticed when I was younger. Um, things that are, you know, not so great. I still think overall, this is a, a really good horror film. It's one of the best horror films that, that was released in the 90s. And I think it's um, a great example of how to take a short story and rewrite it so that it actually works for the big screen. You know, I think all of the changes that they made from the protagonist to his background to even setting the film in Chicago as opposed to Liverpool, I think that really worked for a modern audience. And I think it has one of the greatest villains for any slasher film. Tony Todd's amazing. We can talk about him later. And I think it has one of the best soundtracks of any horror film because the score from Philip Glass is incredible. And he really just uses a piano, an organ, and a choir. And so there's so many reasons why I love this movie. And again, watching it in 2020, like I do see some, I do see some flaws. And I do remember a lot of controversy when the movie was first released. Because it was made at around the time of the Rodney King riots. And when it was finally released, I do remember that a lot of people claimed or criticized the movie for being racist. Um, so anyhow, that is why I chose the movie. And also because there is a remake. Well, it's we don't know when it's going to get released. But like you said, it was supposed to be released like last month. But Jordan Peele's remaking the remake. And I think it's interesting that he's remaking Candyman because I think Candyman and Get Out have a lot of similarities. Um, and also, I like... The fact that this movie has thematically, like, it's it has a lot to do with reflections and mirrors. And so that's just kind of like a, a quick summary of why I like this movie. All right. So I'm a first time viewer. I actually skipped this movie way back because it looked like a cheesy horror movie. The very kind you were expecting. And I wasn't really into those a whole lot back in the, the early 90s. So I never saw this one. And then it just floated down this the river of movies I've never seen. Um, so it was kind of nice. I'm kind of glad you introduced me to this. It does have flaws, but I was very pleasantly surprised by, um, by just how I, I, I don't want to overuse this, this term, but I think it actually applies here. How Hitchcockian this movie kind of is in many ways. It reminded me a lot of one of, I, even though it's a little more on the horror side, um, than some of 
Hitchcock's movies were. It has it does share a lot in common with it and with his style a little a little bit, and we can get into that. And it's like his, his the kind of stories he was drawn to. Uh, but Sean, what is your history with this movie? I may as well be a first time viewer of this. I did see it um, not long after it had been released, but I was young, and it must have been a TV cut. Um, so there would have been some things omitted. I, I remember more so just the the urban legends being talked about at school. Like in there were certain times like going to the bathrooms in middle school uh, or elementary school where kids would talk about Candyman or somebody would have run out screaming saying that they saw Candyman, um, which was ridiculous, <laughs> of course. But it, it, it's funny and kind of nostalgic in a good way thinking about that. I think a lot of kids did the exact same thing. That's that's the power of this movie. And I, I also am obsessed with urban legends. And I like how it's a movie that tackles the idea of the power and the appeal of urban legends. And there's very few movies that have done a good job in addressing why people are, um, I don't know if the word attracted, fascinated, obsessed with urban legends, why urban legends are so popular. Like there's some movies that have been based on urban legends, especially the Bloody Mary urban legend, but this is probably the best of the best. And, and it's, it's funny because the movie, it's really straightforward, like in terms of like the structure and the screenplay, but yet there's a lot going on in Candyman. And I feel like the movie demands a lot from the audience and i think it's because like you know patrick you said that you didn't want to see the movie when you were younger because it looked cheesy and i i had the same reaction my friends and i thought it was gonna be really cheesy and really bad and i think the title the trailer the premise the promise of the marketing it wasn't misleading but it presented Candyman has this like slasher film, but it's not mm -hmm. really a slasher film. It's more of a psychological no. horror film. And so it plays this cruel bait and switch on its viewers. So on the surface, it's about this hook handed ghost who haunts his victims and cuts them wide open with his hook for a hand after they say his name five times in a mirror but there's a lot going on. There's a lot boiling under the surface. Like it sort of touches on slavery and racism and class divide. And it also addresses the power and the appeal of urban legends. But I think the reason why I personally love the horror genre is because I think it's when it's at its best, like Hitchcock, it's the most effective cinematic instrument to investigate the human condition and our fears, our, you know, just like people, like what makes us so complex. And I think this film has a lot going on, despite the fact that it is this Hollywood studio film. And you can see, you know, you, we could talk about the flaws later in the break. But overall, it's, 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 it's weird because it's symbolic and it's literal. It's confusing, it's abstract, but yet it's straightforward. It's subtle, and yet it's hitting you over the head with a hammer with the themes and what it's trying to address. So it's all of these things, but somehow it works. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say that it hits you over the head with too much. Uh, I think there's a lot of undercurrent in this movie, more so than out front uh, kind of addressing of issues. I think first and foremost, it is just trying to be a psychological horror movie. Uh, and, and even... The, the the way the screenplay fleshes out, you could say it was straightforward, except it's straightforward kind of in, 
I don't know, in, in a di- very different way, um, because there is a big twist mid midway through. At least I feel it's a twist, uh, a complete jerking of how this how the story is going to progress. Uh, you sort of know how it's going to end no matter what. And that's that's one of those flaws that I think uh, there's a certain point where the movie reaches. I think it's about halfway through where you know how this is going to end. And that's unfortunate. But the big twist, and I guess you know, this is going to be a spoiler cast. Obviously, this is a very <laughs> old movie. But when um, Virginia Madsen's character is now under suspicion of murder, like everything's changed. She's gone from being the victim to the potential perpetrator. And she thinks that she's going crazy. I feel like that completely spins what was a pretty straightforward kind of investigation of murder and slasher, slashers into way more of a psychological horror movie. Um, before it had just been sort of progressing like an investigation. But now it's completely different. When she starts to think that she's going crazy or everybody else around her thinks that she's going crazy, it's not so much of an investigation movie anymore. It's more of something... Uh, that deals with her own personal demons, uh, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the stuff that she's been working out in her in her normal life. Um, it, it's a, it's. I just I hesitate to call it too straightforward because I think it does provide a nice little twist there that that shoots the movie off in a completely different direction than what I thought as a first time viewer it was going to be. I, I agree, and I, I I think what I'm trying to say is because what we're addressing here is like the plot, the the, the plot twist, the screenplay, the story. But I'm talking about more like the way it's shot and how it gets from the start of the movie to the very end. Because like you said, the ending is pretty predictable. Um, but yes. it's interesting because like I mentioned, reflections and mirrors, and her character arc is a reflection of Tony Todd's character, Candyman, because has a black man in his previous life who was the son of a slave. His father had become wealthy. He was a former slave that became wealthy after the end of the Civil War. And so uh, Candyman grew up as a uh, cultured, wealthy, you know, elite. Um, he grew up in, the, in that sort of environment and uh, educated and everything like that. He attended the finest schools and that sort of thing. Um, but that, but but it's like it's like he stepped into the world of the white man, like a world that's not really at that point in time. Like a lot of black people weren't really living that kind of lifestyle. And here it's sort of like Helen is the white protagonist. She's like studying. Uh, I don't know what she's studying. Whatever. She's at the University of Chicago and she's doing this thesis on urban legends. And so she steps into the projects, which is where. You know, they warn people not to go and there's this whole, I mean, like, it's like people are just afraid to step into the, and this is based on an actual real place from my understanding in Chicago. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cabrini Green. Yeah. Right. So she actually steps into place. So it's kind of like, it's, it's interesting how her story mirrors the story of Candyman. And so she steps in a place where she's supposed to be forbidden, which is why the original short short story is called Forbidden. And therefore, she ends up being sort of like a victim, but yet not a victim. It's weird. (laughs) This is why, like, this movie is so interesting because, like, she's a victim, but at the end of the film, they spin things where she's actually not a victim because now she's preying on the people that she wants to get revenge on. For example, her ex-husband. Sean, jump in. So much to talk about. (laughs) I think that Helen, as portrayed by Virginia Madsen, is the thing that really holds this film together. Um, it's such a a nuanced character for this subgenre, 
and it's such a convincing performance as well. Um, I, I don't think she can rightfully be called a final girl since this isn't really a slasher, as you mentioned. Um, and there's not really like a, a larger subset of characters who are being picked off one by one. Um, but comparing her to other um, lead female actors in horror films like this, I'm thinking Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween or Heather Langenkamp in The Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, the fans of those series and those films really feel um, precious about those performers and those characters. But I think that this is just a much better example. More is being asked of her um, and she's delivering there's this psychological breakdown, um, I think, delivered by another performer. A lot of these scenes would be more loud. There would be overacting, I think. And Well, she's not um, a scream queen in the movie. No, not at all. They actually uh, hypnotized her. Yeah, and I think Madsen is just really really strong and grounds this film she's hypnotized sean she's hypnotized like those scenes where her eyes get all big and she can't blink and she's under the spell of Candyman, they legit hypnotized her which is kind of scary but it's a great way to get a performance (laughs) out of an actress it is yeah and i'm thinking maybe specifically about after she's escaped the hospital and goes back to her uh flat and sees um her husband and and the mistress just the way that she navigates that is so powerful where she is is searching out any kind of comfort because she's not really been framed as such. Candyman's not like purposely killing people uh, just so that the authorities think that she's done it. It just happens that the people that has been the people who have been murdered um, by Candyman, that there's no other witnesses to it. So it's not really a framing, but it's, She's just has no allies. And when she gets to that flat um, and is in a very low place, you can see in the performance where it shifts and she realizes that she has power over these people and that they're a bit afraid of her in the ways that other characters are afraid of Candyman. And just that the performance in that scene, I think, is is really impressive. And, And that was where it really clicked. Like, okay, this is this fits a lot of the archetypes of horror series of the 80s and 90s and to some degree slashers but it's it's operating on a different level i guess i'd hesitate to say on a higher level it's just slightly different from what you'd expect from some of those screen queens like you mentioned well i think one of the big things that i felt at least when watching this movie uh was that i didn't feel sorry for her or Candyman. no matter what their stories were their various stories i didn't feel like either one of them were victims um that I was supposed to sympathize with necessarily. Obviously she is the Helen is the protagonist. You're supposed to sympathize with her to a certain degree, but I felt like uh, this movie was about her having to make a choice ultimately. And I know Candyman's not like maybe personally or uh, particularly framing her for the sake of, you know, the police to get her in trouble, but he is forcing her to make a choice. Um, She could at any moment in the movie, as he would say, give herself over to him and become his latest victim and none of these other people would die. Uh, and he is putting her in uncomfortable positions. He has no problem, you know, uh, when he kills her, uh, the doctor at, the, at the, the mental institution. He makes sure to also cut her restraints, thus letting her escape, but also knowing that this will, this will make it look like, at least it seemed to me, that this will make it look like she murdered the guy. 
uh, at every step, he sort of does things that make it look like she's he puts pressure on her to make the decision to become his victim, because if you know and if she doesn't, there's going to be a baby that's going to die. He's basically saying all these, you know, all these things will happen. He'll just keep on tormenting her friends. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that scene is so good. The way he flies back out of the window. Oh, I, I love, love that love shot. the way they shot this yeah. movie. Well, and then her escape afterwards, uh, I, it, that was, I was thinking of this per Hitchcock in particular, when she's out climbing on the wall, could you get a more Hitchcock shot than that? <laughs> and when a Philip Glass's score going to, which sounds very old, it does not it doesn't sound contemporary in nineties scores. For sure. I mean, and even the villain himself, the main character, the character himself, like Candyman, we only see him for the first time at the 44 minute mark of the movie. So, like, not halfway through the film, but just about halfway through the film. Because I think the movie is just under two hours. And, like, it's it's interesting because he's such a complicated villain because he has a tragic backstory. We, we learn about how he died during the dinner scene, right? But at the same time, we're not given any reason to believe that he was necessarily a good person because he is out for vengeance and revenge. But at the same time the people who he's menacing aren't necessarily like, at least that not that I know of, they're not like ancestors of, you know, cause like with, with Freddy no, Krueger, like Freddy Krueger goes after the parents, right? The parents who actually, or the, the children of the parents who, who burnt him. And mm -hmm. here we're not told that he's necessarily going after the ancestors or he's going after white people or there's any reason for him to specifically pick these people. He's just terrorizing people because much like Freddy Krueger, he needs people to believe in him for him to have power. If you stop talking about Candyman, if the urban legend disappears, if you do not believe in the urban legend, if you don't believe in him, he loses power just like Freddy Krueger. And so what's weird about it is that I think he wants her to understand how he feels. So he puts her in a situation where everybody starts doubting her, where she is looked up, looked at as the villain, like has a crazy person, has a murderer. And so it's it's just, it's this really fascinating horror film. Like for real guys, like, like it's like, I'm really interested to see what Jordan Peele does with the remake. Cause I think there's so much here to work with. And he's such a complex character when you compare him to, like, say, J Jason Voorhees or or Michael Myers. Like, he's so complex for an iconic horror villain. Or even Freddy Krueger. I mean, his his opening bit of narration where he he doesn't need a reason to kill other than blood. Like, he says, what's blood good for if not for spilling it? He's not... He's not doing any of this out of vengeance. He simply enjoys killing people for some reason. Like, that's what he was made to do. I'm not sure. But, yeah, it, he's certainly nobody to feel bad for. At any, He never gives any indication at any moment that, that he's out for revenge. He certainly it doesn't seem to be. He certain, seems to terrorize, uh, you know, lower lower class populations anyway. The, the, you know, anybody who is susceptible to the mythology. Uh, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to it. Even if you look at race or the class divide, he's technically terrorizing young black African Americans who are living in poverty in these ghetto neighborhoods, right? I mean, we learn of the kid who he not only kills, but chops off his penis. Uh, we learn about the lady, uh, the next door neighbor to Vanessa Williams, right? Like she was also murdered, right? Like, and so it's, it's just this interesting character. Sean, I have a question for you, though. 
if this movie didn't actually feature Candyman, like if we never actually see Tony Todd, right? Would we still have a great movie here? I think so, because until I think pretty so late on, um, it's almost asking the viewer to consider that, that all of this is taking place in Helen's head. Uh, especially once we see the footage after she's been tied down in that room uh, and that really great scene where, where Candyman's hovering over her uh, and then we see that that it wasn't actually there. Um, so yeah, because it's so much more psychological than it is a slasher, I think there's a real opportunity to, to read the film in that way. But he's such an interesting character as well. And that other uh, aspect of him that we haven't mentioned is that kind of romantic side and uh, the as the as well. He's a painter. We, we learned that. Um, and the way in which he talks is somebody who is very learned, someone you'd expect to kind of pop out of Shakespeare. And that's where the sweets for the sweet line comes from. Yeah. But it's interesting because like you said, and like Patrick said, there is that sort of like plot twist midway through the film where we start to question her sanity. She starts to question her sanity. The entire cast, all the characters start to question her sanity. So if you remove Candyman like Tony Todd and he was just mentioned, you could still have a movie. But at the same time, you can also have a movie in which it follows the point of view of Anne-Marie, which is played by Vanessa Williams, like her character. And we get her perspective of the kidnapping of her son by this crazy white woman. Like they could take the screenplay and make three different movies, three different great horror films with the exact same screenplay. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And I think that that's what that twist does. It, it makes this a different movie. The second half of the movie feels very different than the first half, which just, just feel more like a straight investigation, a very uh, cookie cutter kind of horror thing, even if it has some nice little stylistic moments uh, and, and good performances. But uh, yeah, that second half takes it off in, in a different direction that lends more to the imagination, really. Even though you actually start to see Candyman and you do sort of know what's going on, it is kind of, he talks so much about his need for people to believe in him in order to to exist that you do start to question whether or not, even with his appearances and seeing his him wreaking havoc to a certain extent, I was still wondering where this was going, if he was going to be all in her head and if she was some kind of maniac killer. So that presence is always there. And that's why the end doesn't work for me very well is because it does wrap things up maybe a little too neat. I wanted a more of a psychological horror ending than what we really got. And that's fine. Like not every, you know, endings are the hardest thing to do in movies. Um, and what, you know, what got me there was good enough. I do think the ending somewhat undoes what came before it, which is a pretty tight screenplay, like a highly charged narrative. And it sort of deflates the tension. I mean, it's the end of a movie, so I guess it should. But I don't know. It just it sort of like takes away from Candyman because now it's like she has the same power as him. But what did she do to actually earn this power? Like, and is she actually? She evil? burned to death. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like he was put through pain to get this power, she was put through uh, exquisite pain, as he says. But, but, but in his case, they lynched him. In her case, she went to go save a baby, doing a heroic deed. Right? She wasn't necessarily like a victim. Like, yeah, they put her in a, in a loony bin. 
but because like like no shit like she looked like the killer right they find her with the the murder weapon not once but twice in her hands at the scene of the crime covered in blood by the way this movie is really bloody <laughs> like really bloody. it does have some some nice gore shots that's for sure yeah but but it's not gory it's just bloody like it's about the set design like it actually looks like a real murder scene where everything is messy like sometimes you watch horror films and there is blood but the blood always gushes in the same direction and hits the exact same spot on the wall but in this Mm -hmm. movie it's like there's blood everywhere and when she gets arrested and she has to like strip nude and she's covered in blood and she's crying like that's a really really great scene also yeah, I had never seen a scene like that before in a movie, actually. I thought that was really interesting, and her reaction to it as well, just being shocked and horrified uh, and repulsed by her own appearance, uh, the blood all over. But I will, I mean, I think that she, in a, in a sense, she has been wronged. Yes, she is the hero, and she does save the kid. And you know what? That's why it doesn't work for me necessarily either, because she wraps up things a little too neatly playing the hero. I never saw her as a heroic figure in any way, honestly. She was an ambitious character, but I not in a heroic way. She wasn't out to necessarily do the right thing. She was out to get her, you know, get her thesis written and 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 KO that that other professor or whatever she said she was gonna do, blow him away. Um and that's why I thought that the the saving the baby was just a little too on the nose uh, she said, we have to make her, we have to somehow turn her into a sympathetic hero. But since you were going to have her be the villain in the end, sort of, like, why do that? Why ha- why do that at all? I think that the film doesn't present her as heroic. I agree with that. But what it does is allow her the opportunity to understand this community in a different way than the average person would um, which is why they rally to her at the funeral. Which, by the way, we're going to talk about this after the break, but the ending of the film, with what Patrick was addressing, like her sort of like not really being a hero, and then how in the end she ends up like killing her ex-husband because he says her name five times in mirror just like Candyman would... But then also having the scene in which all of the people from the Cabrini Green just happened to show up. I, I just thought that was a little bit on the cheese side. Maybe that's Oh, just you me. see, I really like that. Really? My yeah. biggest problem with that funeral <laughs> The biggest problem with the funeral was that she only knew three people apparently, and one of them was the <laughs> <laughs> the one of them was the girlfriend that or the mistress of of her husband. So like that was bizarre. What a bizarre funeral. But there's so many bizarre choices in this movie. So this is one of those movies where the director has this real intense vision. Like he he's like he's got talent, right? But I think Maybe he's in over his head in the sense that he's working with a big crew, a big budget, and he misses the little details. Like, for example, the little kid, right? The little kid sleeps in his winter coat and the same LL Cool J type hat. Like, he's dressed exactly the same when he's in bed as he is throughout the whole entire film. Like, little things like that. I know it sounds weird, but there's, like, all of these... Like, watching this movie, I was like, there's all of these things that I noticed. Like, little, little details which are kind of like funny like the fact that they all show up at the same time the fact that there's only a few people at the funeral um like 
anyways, it was just it was it was interesting to watch the movie again in 2020, noticing how the director really just did not pay attention to those little details. He was focused on the bigger story, I guess, and maybe that's more important. But I want to just linger on the the ending just a little bit longer because I it's probably the only aspect of Candyman that I don't really get on with. Um, and it's really just that last scene. So if it had ended after that funeral moment, I would have been a lot more satisfied, but because of the final sequence, the, the script makes a point, uh, of her saying, even if you looked like, I don't remember the exact quote, but whatever is hidden away, like it's still not within me to do that, to be that violent person. So there's that clash where that felt very earnest and I could get behind her in, in that way. So to, to become the new Candyman and to enact violence, um, but, but it felt like it, sense, it went though. against that. Yeah. Because they bring her like, okay, they bring her to hook and they, like they dropped the hook into like on top of the coffin and then we get the scene where she becomes the killer. So it's it's like, is she the hero or is she the villain? Like, make up your mind, movie. <laughs> Which well, one is the it? The problem is, I don't. I'm not sure that she. To me, she didn't earn either, and that's why both of those things don't make enough sense to me. I, I get what you're saying. Like, a character has to be able to change. So the, the fact that they didn't portray her as the hero at first is fine because a character can change over the course of the movie and discover new things and discover what's really important to them. I didn't feel that she earned that when in becoming the hero uh that she earned that kind of uh adoration from the community i don't i I didn't get the sense that she really got buried like that she finally understood that community at all to tell you the truth i get what they were going for but i didn't feel like they actually earned that moment and i and then like you said with her earnestness before like that she didn't believe that she had the killer side in her i didn't believe that they earned the moment of her being the bad guy either and so both of those kind of clunk for me, but it, but only, they are only the last ten minutes or so of the movie, or not even that long. It's really the last five minutes of the movie, and and that's fine. Not only did did they not earn her becoming the killer in that way, it was also it it did something. I guess the reason why the last scene irks me is it's the only part of the film that does feel like a very traditional 90s horror film because it revels in its violence where the husband is genuinely repenting like it it is seriously bothering him everything that's happened and yeah he's a piece of shit and we, we're kind of rooting for him to to fail uh and ultimately to to be killed at some points in the film but by the time we get there like it's it's convincing enough where killing him at that point at his lowest low just feels like reveling in the revenge, which is something that horror does a lot of the time and can sometimes do really well. And I can, I think I can get behind. I'd have to think about examples for that, but here it just felt kind of cheap. Um, and, and I agree that, that maybe it wasn't earned about the community thing, but there were moments where she, she observes uh, after she's been attacked in the bathroom, like, yeah, the, the, you know, I bet all these crimes happen or whatever, and, and nothing ever happens. But you know, one white woman gets hurt, and then the police come barging in. And I think she becomes more and more conscious of of these kinds of things. Yeah, there are there are lines here and there for sure where they sort of try that. I just wish they would have actually 
yeah, I agree. been a little more solid for it. I agree. But but Sean, I think my problem with the funeral, the second last scene, is it's more about the execution. The fact that they just all of a sudden appear. They're all walking in a straight line. Like, mm-hmm. like why why couldn't they just have started the funeral and all the people were already there present? Also, why the hook? Like, I understand them showing up at her funeral because she saved the baby. That makes total sense. It's just the execution. It was cheesy. I think they're passing the torch. I, I, I kind of wonder but, if that but was why, though? Because she is now their Avenger or something like that, that maybe? I'm not sense. sure. Like, they want to get rid of Candyman. Yeah, but the can- her, she is Candyman maybe will not terrorize their community. Maybe she is Candyman will terrorize a different community. Well, and again, when <laughs> I, we talk I, about I, reflections and the mirror and thematically, like, where she lives, like, because where she lives, like, her quote-unquote condo was supposed to be the uh what do you guys call it in the states we call it projects in canada the public housing uh, i guess yeah it was supposed to be low-income housing right and then they they ended up they decided to just make it these like fancy condos but really that's what it was supposed to be and she lives on the other side of the track so i guess she could become the killer of that side of the track that part of the neighborhood but it just doesn't make Which any she sense does, by the she way kills in in that condo her yeah. first kill is in that condo, which is kind of the mirror reflection of where Candyman had been killing in the which other condo. Thematically, it works. I just don't. They didn't set it up enough. Not for her character, because like the thing, yeah. the thing about horror films or any movie for that matter is when you create your rules in your universe, right? You have to stick by the rules, and when you create your characters and the characters have like motivations and characteristics, you have to like sort of honor those characters right you can't just all of a sudden have a guy who's racist for example in one scene and the next scene he's not without any explanation you can't have a guy who can't fly in the next scene he can fly but it's not even like a science fiction film you know what i mean and so in this movie like the ending betrays her character and also betrays everybody else like all of the people who live in the projects because it doesn't make sense for them to want to have an, an additional killer on the loose like it makes no sense also she would fail her thesis because technically we didn't learn anything about Candyman through her <laughs> i'm just saying that's well i'm not just, gonna claim she was the greatest graduate student of all time that's just rubbing salt in the wound that she fails her degree <laughs> you know i will say this they had all the elements there in order to make that that turn work to make either one of them work to tell you the truth and she could have turned evil in the end you just have to plant that seed it's okay for a character to earnestly think that they're not capable of killing and then find out later on in the story that they are but and and that burning i mean it wouldn't be the first time that somebody was horrifically pained in a movie and that change warped their mentality a little bit burning alive could have done something to her psyche that that turned her into a killer that's not impossible kind of like how Candyman endured horrible pain and horrible unearned unearned death that uh, that warped him into a killer well, and we, i don't think we've mentioned the fact that helen in this movie i don't think she's necessarily the um the reincarnation of Candyman's girlfriend from the past but no i, think I don't she resembles I don't her no but she resembles yeah. her for sure um, and so it's weird because Candyman is looking for someone to spend his quote unquote afterlife with. Like he's looking for a love, but yet he's a killer, but yet he has a tragic story of how he died. So they want you to sympathize for him, but yet fear him. 
I think that's what makes this movie so eminently watchable is there are a lot of facets to this stuff and they're not all properly explained. That that doesn't pay off necessarily in the end, but throughout the entire movie it does because you're constantly questioning everything and you're thinking about things in different ways. You're trying to maybe sympathize more with Helen than you really can. That's that was my experience. Like I, I feel like I should be liking this person more, but she's she's doing certain things that and saying certain things that I'm not sure I can completely get on board with from a protagonist. But I do find it fascinating. I found her a fascinating character, and I found her to be more human than most characters in these kinds of horror movies are. And I found Candyman also to be a fascinating villain because he didn't have a typical revenge motive or any motive really at all, other than he enjoyed killing, which is why people are drawn to, you know, TV shows like Dexter to a certain extent. Like sometimes there doesn't need to be, not having a reason can be more fascinating than the reason. Um, And there's a lot of that here in Candyman, just a lot of weird motivation stuff that I didn't quite I didn't get, and I loved that about it, that I was guessing the whole way. Just to highlight the different viewers' different responses, I will say that I um, did, let's see, sympathize. I I cared what happened to Helen, but that's because the story, um, the archetype, is such a, a specific one that works so well for me basically all the time that I see that, and it's the the main character who is being put through the ringer like for no good reason. So it could be a framing or it could just be bad things happening to a good person. Um, and, and that's just a bias that I have. That's, that's a kind of story where like I'm, you could just do that pretty half-heartedly and I'll still be immediately on board because it's such a relatable thing where as long as the, the circumstances are things that could actually happen to somebody, it's just a, a matter of unfortunate stuff. And, and that that's very relatable, I think. But I could see why um, why you feel like we, we need more there to really get invested in, in her success or her failure. I, I was absolutely invested in her. I should mention that, that I loved watching her. She's very, and like I said, she seems more human than most. And that is what fascinated me. I wasn't necessarily going to jump on her side or against her, by the way. I was not against her in any way. I just didn't know which direction she was going to go. And it was kind of thrilling to me to be off kilter like that, to Mm. not really fully buy in like this is my hero. I didn't know was she going to turn out to be a psychotic killer. So I was kind of kept teetering a little bit in my support of her, like until I found out what was ultimately going to happen. And I I really loved that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Virginia Madsen is amazing her performance is incredible in this film there's a few things i want to touch up on before we go to break uh number one the cinematography the camera work this is a movie that was made in the 90s and this is before cgi really took off and they have these beautiful sky cam shots like they use sky cam technology so you would get these aerial shots of chicago or the projects or whatever to set and it sort of um, there's just something about the, 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 the way Bernard Rose shot this film. It's very patient. It's very slow, especially for a movie. Once again, in the nineties, like horror films, slasher films in the nineties, I'm thinking of like scream. I know what you did last summer. Movies like that. Very fast paced. Um, you know, people running around screen queens screaming. This is not that type of film. It's like, you know, you, you, you mentioned Patrick Hitchcock. Um, so I love the way he shoots it. 
And I like the the jump scares because they might seem traditional or or uh, cliche or you know typical like jump scares that you would see in horror films. But I find they are so effective. Like I've seen this movie several times, and I know the jump scare is coming. And the sound design is so good that I I still felt myself sort of like, you know, not necessarily like I wasn't scared, but I would sort of like jump or grab onto my seat. So I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but I thought the sound design was really good. And I love the dream sequences. And yeah, overall, just like the way it was shot, there's, there's just like this dreamy quality about the movie, which works because we're not entirely sure what's real and what's not real. Uh, well, I'm gonna say, oh, go ahead. You first, Sean. I'll, I'll co-sign on one very specific thing about that. Um, and that's the, the first shot of the film, the top-down view of the Chicago freeway. And I'm trying to, I spent the last few years, I guess, trying to learn more and more about filmmaking. Not that I'm interested in getting into it. Like I have no desire to become a director. It's just like really enhanced my experiences as a viewer. And seeing that was so satisfying because it just reinforced some of the things that I feel like I've learned. If, if that was without the really beautiful piece by Philip Glass, I still feel like I would I could go in cold and get a sense that this is either a thriller or a horror film because it moves from right to left and everything that I've learned about how films are shot as a Western viewer, like we're used to reading from left to right. That's the natural thing. That's a positive thing. So whenever anything runs contrary to that, it's supposed to unsettle you. And so I think I thought that, that was just such a smart decision. Yeah. It also reminded me of just uh, of how Hitchcock would do an opening. And I thought that the score right away, it almost sounded like a little bit of an over overture um, right away. You're just getting out the theme of the movie and showing the city like that for some reason, I, I can't say that it had any them thematic connection, but it just reminded me stylistically of what he would do. And I, he used a lot of Dolly and, and zooms too, which I love. <laughs> and that was a lot of great crane shots too. He did use crane shots. I love the interiors uh, where it's just a small dolly movement and a zoom in. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it, it or even a track and zoom or the zoom out where she comes out of the, the wall. Exactly. The well, that's where he used the crane, though. She comes out of the wall and then we get the crane and it tilts up and then we see the full blown graffiti, uh, the mural, which is his face, right? Yeah, that's a great shot. There's a lot, a lot of really, really great shots in this movie. And once so, again, the soundtrack is incredible. So many of those interiors really reminded me of like the best that came out of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Like whenever any of those scenes are set in the boiler rooms or anything like that, it just evoked that a lot. Like the two biggest influences I saw watching this now were Nightmare and, and Jacob's Ladder. And, and Jacob's Ladder being one of the only truly great horror films from the 90s i think um and i think it was drawing on both of those really well it's it's really really interesting how this is so different than the original short story i mean the fact that they added backstories for helen and Candyman, um like it doesn't even feel like it's the same story it's it's really like a great example of of uh, writing a, gr a good screenplay what's interesting though is according to internet movie database is clive barker is is credited as a screenplay writer so, like, I know he wrote the original story, but apparently he helped with the screenplay, too. It's possible. I mean, in the actual credits on the movie, it's just uh, Bernard Rose, I believe. But you always, as the, yeah, I mean, Barker, I'm sure, had some input. Um, 
but I think most of the, most of the big decisions were, were roses to move it to America and to, to come up with the, that backstory. And so we were talking about this before we started recording a podcast. So we should actually mention it right now. Um, they actually used real bees in this movie. So those are real bees hovering in his mouth on her face. And I think that's amazing. Like, I, I, I just, I mean, first of all, it's really brave of the actors to sit there with thousands of bees, like, on top of them. But also, it's just, like, it's way better than CGI. You know what I mean? So, like, if, I, w- I would be curious to see if if Jordan Peele's remake has this many bees. And if so, are they real or will it be CGI? I would assume I... that Tony Todd would want to do the practical effects yeah and, and i i gotta admit it was impressive when i was watching especially when they're coming out of his mouth i was thinking how did they go about that then you read up a, a little bit on it and he did have a protective covering inside his mouth um and also they were trying to use bees that were so young that they couldn't sting yet so things like that which how do you know how old the bee is well, I you know when they get born, <laughs> <laughs> but it, but they said like they said it had to be less than a day old, so they just. Oh, anyways, I guess I'll I'm going to leave that one to the beekeepers. Yeah, I'm sure they 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 got that covered. The bee wranglers, the Hollywood bee wranglers. You know they've been doing it for for decades. Uh, so, all right, we should probably take a break here at this point in time, though. And when we come back, we will uh, have some specific questions about Candyman. We'll be back in a second. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. It was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Hmm. Poor Candyman. father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. And no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary. Dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. All right, that was another clip from 1992's Candyman. Uh, we are now at our portion of the podcast where we ask some questions about the movie, some good, some bad. Uh, try to sort of cover everything from all different angles. The first one, we always try to start off positive. So the first one is, 
Sean, what is your favorite scene from Candyman? My favorite scene. It's so tough. I think we mentioned it in the first half. Um, at least it it draws on something that I think that this film does really well. And this is after uh, um, she's been taken to the police station and is being stripped and is in such a state. Um, one of the reasons that that's such a good scene, um, I think Ricky already talked about, just the the use of blood throughout the film and how effective it is compared to how other horror films do it. The other thing that it highlights for me is how tasteful this film is when it comes to its gaze as well. It's obviously socially conscious in its script, but in terms of how it's shot as well, um, it's just anybody who's a fan of, of horrors, especially 80s and, and 90s stuff, knows how often uh, female performers are asked to become undressed and how a lot of the time it's not tasteful. It's just there for titillation. Uh, and I think that both of the scenes that we get um, where Virginia Maston uh, has to be nude for part of it, it's just the way that it's framed, the way that it's blocked. Um, it's it's just very much not doing that. So I appreciated it um, deviating from the norms, uh, which are not very good norms, which I, it seems like a lot of filmmakers have grown out of since then, but unfortunately a lot of horror that's released now still um, leans into that. Um, but yeah, that it was such a horrifying scene anyway that that just enhanced it for me, where it was, we weren't ogling her in any way. We just felt really bad. <laughs> and it's supposed to be. I will say this, as somebody, I mean, I, I've rarely rarely found nude scenes to be effective in movies period i just honestly most of them don't really enhance what they're in no matter what kind of movie um but there are some that work and i will say that the one in the police station for me for sure enhanced it uh because it definitely for the first time i felt not only the the vulnerability but the uh, both vulnerability and disgust at your own self like your own body uh, in that particular case, like you say, there was nothing, there's not supposed to be anything sexy about that. That was, that purely was enforcing what, what her mental state was at that point in time. Um, and, and it really worked well. Uh, that, that's definitely one of my favorite uh, parts of the movie. It was, and her performance as she's doing that. I mean, the mixture of shock and anguish and everything was, uh, was fantastic. I will just quickly say that I, I do think nudity can be done really well in some films. And um, Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac and Gaspar Noe's Love, I think, are really good examples of that. But yeah, I, when it comes to horror, it's so much more tricky to navigate. And I think that, that this does it really well. Mm -hmm. Rick, what about you? What was your favorite scene? Well, you know, I want to see the opening with Ted Raimi playing Billy. <laughs> I know. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, I would also like to say the scene in which the dog is beheaded because that scene breaks two big like taboos, two big no-nos in any movie, and that's don't kill a dog and don't kill a child. Mind you, the child isn't dead, it wasn't killed, but the scene at the beginning, you think the kid was dead or was murdered because there's blood everywhere. But um, actually, I think the best scene, the best, like it might not be my favorite, but I think it's the best scene. It's the scene in which she sits down for dinner with her husband and his colleague, 
and his colleague tells her the story of Candyman's origin. And I I think in many ways that scene plays out like a classic scene from Hammer horror films like or even the original Dracula film from 1931. It's very gothic and you know the director could have shown flashbacks of the lynching, the mutilation, the you know of what happens to Candyman, the fact that they chop off his hand and the fact that he gets killed by a swarm of bees like they could have done this to sort of get that reaction from the audience right show gore and blood and show this guy die and thank god they didn't (laughs) but they do something way better way better they just focus on the sound design on his voice and on her reaction of him telling a story and i remember when i you know when i first watched this movie with my friends that stormy night thunder and lightning were all scared you know how it is when you're with your friends and at first everyone's sort of like talking and cracking jokes. When that scene hit, that's when everyone in the room was just quiet and the movie grabbed us and had our full attention. And we were like, holy shit, this movie is, is, is serious, right? Like, like this is like a real horror film. And so to me, like that's the best scene in the film. And I, like, again, I still remember watching this movie for the first time, like it was yesterday. And I remember when that scene came on, everyone in the room, just all of a sudden stopped talking, stopped joking around. And it had our full attention. It's so beautifully shot. It's a storytelling scene, just like the opening of the fog. It's hard when somebody's a good storyteller, it's hard not to to sit there and listen to them. And that actor, I'm not sure who, what his name is, who plays the sort of the arrogant colleague. Um, he was just a good storyteller. A pen and teller. He looks like one of those dudes, one of those magician dudes. I don't he know looks, or you're right, him. he looks a bit like Penn, but he, it's is it not Penn. Penn okay. <laughs> he, he looks a bit like like a more uh, gross version of Penn. Uh, sorry, whoever that actor is. <laughs> we were not supposed to like you, though. <laughs> um, for me, my favorite scene, I like to have a little bit of everything involved, and we've already talked about this scene as well. Uh, I did, uh, I think, a little bit, too. But it's the scene where she's being interviewed. She's in the the asylum and she's being interviewed by by the doctor, who's supposedly working for her defense, uh, her her lawyer. And um, it goes through a little bit of everything there. You get to sort of, you get the tension of him trying to get her side of the story out, her reluctance to seem any more crazy than she already seems by not telling the story at all. And then you also get the jump scare of Candyman actually shocking, uh, killing the doctor, and that cool pulling him back out the window which i don't i don't know how they did that but it looked great for real how uh, did some, they do that firework in there i don't know there must have been a, a tiny little oh, i don't there was obviously had to be a wire through the glass or something that they uh, erased and they just pulled him right through the glass it was a fantastic shot and you get that magnificent escape which which seems so dramatic and that's where i i love that sort of hitchcockian escape where she dresses up like a nurse and climbs out through the or she climbs out through the wall first and you get that great overhead bird's eye shot of her uh with people running around down below and then she dresses up like a nurse a nice little escape scene and it's just the whole thing just seemed very wrong person wrongly accused person on the run uh, that Hitchcock used to be so fond of, and uh, it was very stylistically done, and just sort of had all the right. And the and Philip Glass's score is pounding at that moment with the theme, and it's all it's all great. All right, so down to brass tacks, though, Sean. If there's one thing you could change about Candyman, what would it be? Um, I did mention the final scene and why it didn't work for me as much. The only other 
aspect that I would change would be in that scene that you've just talked about, which I agree is is otherwise one of the strongest scenes in the film. But when we were talking about um, the different directions that a viewer might be able to take uh, in terms of their relationship with Helen, that the only time where it really felt like the seed was planted to allow her to become this murderer at the end, which I don't think was the better option, um, was in her calling on Candyman um, to get Dr. Burke. She, she doesn't do it maliciously. It's because he's obviously not listening. Um, and so she needs to prove that this is happening, which is why she calls on Candyman. But if there was some way to contrive the script so that it was Dr. Burke who was like, okay, I'm just going to do this to humor you. And, and she was being defensive about it and saying, no, 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 don't do that. And he does it anyway. That that would be the version that I would have liked more just because it it would lean into the reading that I have of the film. Mm-hmm. Which we, that would have definitely supported more of the she is being beset on all sides by forces, you know, that are tormenting her kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have worked, definitely worked towards that. Um, Rick, what would you have changed? I mean, the final scene, like, I just feel like it's a studio asking the director to include a scene so they can make a sequel because they wanted a sequel. And I just don't see the purpose in having her be the next Candyman. It makes no sense. So if I had to change one thing, it would be that. Oh, and, uh, you know, Jake, like when he goes to sleep, he shouldn't wear the exact same clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not. Was he really sleeping in a bed, by the way? I feel like he was sleeping in a I don't know. I don't know what that was, but it certainly didn't seem like an apartment. But that's the thing about the little things, like, the, you know, the little details, like the fact that they all wake up at the exact same time, walk out of the apartment building at the exact same time, like it's all synchronized, and they're ready to light up, which, by the way, it's already set up. They have this, like, bonfire ready to go, and they're ready to light up. Like, I was just like, what the hell, man? Like, were they just all sitting by their window, like, looking outside, waiting for this moment? Like, it was so weird. I'm not really sure what went on. And I think, I mean, I obviously would change the ending too. I don't like either, either thing that happens. <laughs> I don't like saving the baby. And, and I, although her getting burned to death, I was impressed that they did that, that they showed it as much as they did too. <laughs> they didn't hold back uh, on any of that. Like uh, she was horribly, horribly disfigured uh, at the end, but uh, I obviously didn't like it. The, the her turning into the killer thing could have thematically worked if they had leaned into it. They needed to pick a side, I think, and that that was the problem. And in the end, they just ran with both endings. It's like she got to be the hero and the villain at the same time, and neither one of them worked. So I don't think there's anything more that I can say on that. The ending doesn't really work for me. Otherwise, I really, uh, I'm not really sure that there was too much else that I would change. Uh, I sort of, I, I liked everything at the way that it was. It was all fairly subtle. I don't think that there was anything that was beating you over the head. Like you know, her husband, even though he's uh, slimy, Trevor played by an actor whose name always escapes me, and I love that guy in basically everything. It's Sander uh, Berkeley. That's right, yes. He's always so good in those slimy roles. But they didn't make him go overboard, because when she is having, you know, when she is arrested by the police, yes, he is with his, you know, student uh, lover the night that she actually gets arrested. But he does come to the jailhouse. He does seem supportive. He does bring her home. He does get her a lawyer. He does get her help. He does stay with her. Uh, for the most part. And he really only leaves her 
when it would be, I don't know, it would be kind of believable to anybody that she was a psychotic killer. So not a bad reason to leave your wife. All things. We don't necessarily know if he was having an affair prior to her being sent to the insane asylum. Like, no, we don't know that actually. Not not for a fact, but he not for a fact. He was away. He was he was away at night, and he lied and said that he was at home. Um, but I'm just saying we don't know. No, we don't. But we can guess, and even even still, that doesn't. They play it so that he's not like some sort of beast. He's just kind of a slimy guy. Which I like. Again, they didn't hit you over the head. He didn't have to be the worst person in the world. Uh, they were able to add some complexity to even a minor character like him. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. There's there's, there's not a whole lot else I, I would have changed this movie other than the ending. Okay, that being said, uh, who is your MVP of Candyman, Sean? It's just definitely a Virginia Madsen. I would like to be able to highlight somebody else um don't really like picking main characters when it comes to stuff like that and and even looking at technical people like cinematographers or composers in this case and this is a really good Philip glass composition uh and that's saying something but yeah when i because i'm such a horror fan um and the the lead heroine is such a an important part of that genre this is one of the standout performances and one of the standout three-dimensional characters uh from the decade for that and it's just it is somewhat down to solid writing for her um but i think that madsen really carries the material yeah i gotta go with her as well uh that's why i'll, I'll just piggyback off you so that we can let rick uh, in, in case he has somebody different uh, i'm I think the writing is solid, but if you her lines delivered by somebody else would not have nearly the complexity and depth that they do. Uh, it's good; it's a good structure, and he does write things fairly vague. Um, but uh, I think this movie could have been made with another director, even though I do like a lot of the work that he did here. I think that it would be very hard to see without her perform her performance. I don't think it necessarily would have, would have hit home as much. Uh, without her performance. What about you, Rick? So she's in second place because I think her performance is amazing, but I think Tony Todd is the MVP because this movie is famous because of Candyman and he plays Candyman and it's, it's his performance. It's his voice. It's he's so unlike any villain for any horror film or slasher film um, it has to be Tony Todd. I mean, people know Candyman more so than the actual film. Like, even if they've never seen the film, they know his voice. They know his silhouette. They know that he wears that long trench coat with the the outline of fur around it, right? Like, it has to be Candyman. It has to be Tony Todd. So I'm going to give it to Tony Todd. Because I think, like, you know, like, I was uh, reading the Internet Movie Database trivia page, and... um they mentioned all these actors who were supposed to be Candyman, and then they mentioned Eddie Murphy. And I'm like, can you imagine this movie? Like, no offense, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy is a good actor, but like, I can't imagine this movie working the way it does with someone like Eddie Murphy in the role of the Candyman as opposed to Tony Todd. So I don't know. I would say if you really liked Tony Todd in this one, and you've not seen the second one, or for listeners who have not seen the second one. It's not as good of a film as the first one by any means, but 
just in terms of the, the Tony Toddness and the Candyman scenes, he gets to do more in that second one. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't give him the MVP strictly because he's not in it a lot. He, you're right, he does make an impact um, when he is there, but there's a whole lot of movie that we have to get through where he's not there, and that's why ultimately I had to go with Madsen on that one. So a great movie, according to Howard Hawks, was composed of three great scenes and no bad ones. I have a feeling how we're all going <laughs> to end up on this, <laughs> but does Candyman pass the Howard Hawks test, Sean? Uh, it passes half of it by having at least three great scenes. Um, and, you know, if, if the ending was different, then it would ultimately pass the test. But um, the, I think the ending does drag it down below that threshold. I mean, so here's the thing, right? If I were to give you a copy of the movie, except I purposely excluded the last scene, then I would say yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'd have to cut it somewhere else even before just the last scene. Like I said, I don't like the funeral scene. Um, it doesn't work for me. But everything up until then, yes, there are plenty of great scenes, I think. Or at least three, I would say. At least three. Uh, yeah, it's got bad scenes. It can't pass. <laughs> <laughs> it, this deserves some extra love, probably just because the 90s was such a notoriously bad decade for horror. We did get Scream, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. That series did a whole lot to reinvigorate the genre by being a meta-narrative. Um, but other than stuff like like Jacob's Ladder, which I mentioned, and The Mouth of Madness, which you guys covered not too long ago, and um, New Nightmare, which is all... There's just... There weren't many things, good things, that came out of the 90s for horror, and, and Candyman was one of them. Dude, I've said this, like, at least three times now on the podcast in the past, like four weeks the 90s was not a good decade for horror no it had wound down uh the 80s killed off kind of like towards the end of the 80s it started horror started to become a little bit of a parody of itself and i think the 90s it was trying to find itself again uh, which scream did for a little while and then a lot of movies copied scream and they killed that <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of like incredible horror adjacent films like seven and silence of the lambs but in terms of like proper horror genre stuff yeah just this is a highlight. Not the highlight, but it is a highlight from the 90s. Yeah, and it's a very interesting horror movie. So even if it doesn't pass the test, uh, this is a very good movie that's one of the most interesting horror movies that is supposed to be kind of a slasher film, sells itself as kind of a slasher film, that I, but really isn't, that I've ever seen. Um, definitely, definitely worth catching. Uh, all right, so that, with that being said... Um, who is Candyman for? What sort of audience do you see appreciating this as, as we go forward? Is this strictly for genre fans, or can more people appreciate Candyman? I think what Get Out did for just the general film audience, um, you can look at Candyman as a sort of precursor by Jordan Peele as an obvious, um, although good choice for producing the remake, um, I think it extends beyond the genre. I think genre fans will like it, but I think anybody who is a bit meh or on the fence when it comes to horror will be won over by how socially aware this is and how it subverts a lot of our expectations for the genre. And even genre fans really love that aspect as well. Like if you just look at the, the big slasher fans who 
do YouTube videos, um, and there's a network of them, and, and they're all really wonderful. Um, they they tend to like the things that deviate from the formula rather than the ones that really lean into them. They do get behind like blood and guts and and really awesome kills, but something like this I think stands out even in the genre fans' uh, minds because its its appeal is beyond the genre. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't really. We, you guys may have touched on it slightly or danced around it, but you don't really ever see the kills in this movie. You just see the aftermath of the kills, which is kind of an interesting thing for a movie that's supposed to be a slasher film. Well, the only kill sequence that we actually see on camera is when he kills a psychiatrist. Which is kind of nice. It, 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 it lends more of an investigation thing to it and a mystery, air of mystery to it as well. It really helps with the psychological horror that we don't see it because then we just see the results and Helen's got a knife in her hand. So maybe it really was her. Um, yeah. So I, I think there are a couple of things that are going to hold, you know, audiences or put audiences at a distance movie, a general audience. I think one is Philip Glass's score, which I think is absolutely fantastic and suits the movie really well. And like I said, it reminds me of an older score um, like to a Hitchcock movie, but I think that will put some people off. Um, there's, you know, little, little quaint things about it, but I think that it has enough complexity to it. It has so much more complexity than most horror movies do that it, it, it shouldn't keep anybody interested in the characters. This is a, one of the very few horror movies where you really can get into the characters on a more fascinating level than other than just rooting for them because you know that they're the, they're the good person. They're the one that's supposed to make it through this whole thing. Um, these are characters that you can actually, that, that bear some examination that are worth examining uh, and talking about with people. So I, in that sense, I think that general audiences can appreciate this as well as genre fans. What do you think, Rick? I mean, I'm, I'm going to totally agree. There's no sense in really repeating what you just said. I think that, um, I mean, I hate to use the word sophisticated, but it's like a sophisticated horror film that doesn't rely on cheap jump scares or lots of blood and gore. It's just a really smartly directed, well-written horror film that just so happens to have two great performances and some really good performances from the rest of the cast, an incredible score, great cinematography. And it's, again, one of those movies that's over in like 90 minutes or so. And nowadays, like every movie has to be over two hours long. So it's, it's just like a really good film. I think the one sticking point, sorry to add in one other thing that the actual genre fans might have rather than the general audience is that um, what's already been mentioned about how long it takes for Candyman to appear on screen. I think some horror fans will probably be kind of checking their watches, wondering, okay, when, when are things going to pick up? But uh, that, that to me seems like a, a bad way to view it. And just look at John Carpenter's Halloween as a point of comparison. We get Michael's first kill at the beginning. We also get a Candyman kill at the beginning of this. And then both films just build up the tension and it takes a while until everything kicks off. So, and, and I don't think anybody has any pacing issues with the first Halloween. So I, I would encourage people who feel like it's, it's slow to just think about some of the other classic, cla classic slashers, which is very difficult to say. Um, as as ones that have the same formula. It's funny you say that because, I mean, I feel like a younger audience is going to love this movie. Yes, 
he like he only appears at the 44 minute mark but they they tease him throughout the whole entire film and there's just incredible buildup to that moment and young people are really into urban legends right so i kind of feel like this is the kind of movie that Anyone who's interested in watching a good horror film, no matter if you're, you know, over the age of 50 or under the age of 50 or like a teenager, I think you will like this movie because it's like a lot of people don't like slasher films. They don't like gory, like uh, gore fest movies. They don't like stuff like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive and or Jason Goes to Hell. But this is a psychological psychological horror film. And I think that uh, those types of films have like a wider audience that's more interested in seeing them. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's it's almost like a serial killer movie, more so than a slash like 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 a Silence of the Lambs, where you do see disgusting, disturbing imagery, uh, but you don't actually see a whole lot of there's. It's not violence for the sake of gore, kind of thing. It's not action in that same way. Uh, so if you are looking for a killer or a, a horror movie, a slasher movie, where you want to cheer on the uh, the slasher, well, that's definitely not this. That's the only thing, the only problem I can see somebody having if they're expecting to be to root for, you know, Jason Voorhees. Well, this movie wasn't made like that, even though it was around the same time period. By the way, I feel really bad now because I said the 90s was a terrible decade for horror. And I think that's a stretch. I don't think it was the greatest, but because I'm looking at my list, I'm doing a list of all the best movies of every year of the 90s. And there's like at least five horror films in every year so i think i can easily make a list of a hundred no i would say i can easily make a list of 50 great horror films from the 90s but still be skeptical really 50 i I think i could 50 great horror films from the 90s yeah i think okay maybe 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 30 (laughs) yeah i was gonna say after like 20 of them i think maybe some of them it's a little bit of a stretch there's a lot of good international ones from ones that are japanese or spanish but in terms of like mainstream ones i i think 20 or 30 would be where i'd cap that list challenge extended rick (laughs) (laughs) i expect to see that list up on goombastop by the end of the month (laughs) all right guys we should probably wrap things up um sean where can we find you online uh nowhere you can find me um i'm not on any of the social medias uh purpose so if you want to send hateful things about any of my opinions on this podcast you could just comment directly on the, the goomba stomp post for this but if you want to listen to me and another writer at goomba stomp tv editor randy dinkovich talk about tv then the mid-season replacements podcast is hosted through there and it's also on on podbean and itunes and all that stuff yeah, people should definitely check that out. Uh, I also do not go on social media very often, so I have not been on um, the Sword Cinema Twitter account for a little while now. Although I reckon that will probably start to, I'll probably start going back on it at least a little bit, easing myself back into it um, as I start doing a little more writing. So, but you can't really find me anywhere else <laughs> other than maybe at Goomba Stop occasionally, but mostly through this podcast for now. Um, Rick, what about you? Where can we find you online? Um, sorry, I'm just trying to figure out where I put Candyman on my list of best movies of <laughs> 1992. It's on the 29th spot. Ooh. Whoa. That, that's overall films, right? Not not just horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's not my number one horror film in 1992. 
what was? Uh, Wait, 1992. The number one horror film of 1992, according to this guy, is Brain Dead, a.k.a. Dead Alive, by director Peter Jackson. I can, I mean, I, to me, that's, I, it is, it's a gory film, but I always see that as a comedy, but. Horror comedy, but it's, yeah, a, it's, it's on horror top comedy. of, uh, of Candyman. Yeah, unless you want to count Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which some people consider a horror film. That's, that's tricky, yeah. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? I guess traditional horror film, then yes, Candyman is the, the best of 90, 1992. That makes sense. Uh, anyhow, you can find me online over goombastomp.com and or sortedcinema.com. You can listen to the podcast just about everywhere from iTunes to Google Play to Stitcher to Spotify. And, of course, on the website goombastomp.com. You can find all the links there and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Yeah, definitely give us a rating on iTunes. That would be helpful. Or a review would be even better. We'd love to hear from everybody. And comments would be great, too. We love hearing. We love getting comments. We love arguing about movies or agreeing about movies. Just talking about movies. Uh, that will do it for this week. We will be ba- back next week. We'll see you then. Oh.